This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. everyone, this is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And my guest today is uh, British-American filmmaker Sebastian Siegel. Thank you so much, Sebastian, for taking the time to be with me today. Chris, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Um, so before we get started with this conversation, just want to read your bio to uh, let listeners who aren't familiar with you know a little more about you. Um, British-American filmmaker Sebastian Siegel has written, produced, and directed acclaimed trailers, commercials, two documentary films, and the feature Grace and Grit, adapted from Ken Wilber's globally popular book. Sebastian is from Oxford, England, and is based in California, where he works as a writer, director, producer, author, and facilitates think tanks, engaging numerous modalities of storytelling. Sebastian is currently in development and production of several feature films adapted from both books and true stories. So again, Sebastian, thank you for, uh, for your time today. I'm so excited to talk to you because, um, so it was the day after my birthday, actually on June 4th, um, Grace and Grit came out and you know, what a, what a birthday treat that was. Um, I was actually still traveling, uh, back. I just got back from Mount Shasta, California. So I wasn't able to watch it. Um, no, actually, I apologize. I watched it right before I went. Um, see, I'm still in this. Uh, Mount Shasta does things to you. For any anybody who's been there or knows of it, still coming down from that trip. So anyways, I watched it before I went. And um, I was deeply touched, shaken to my core. Um, Grace and Grit, uh, as well as One Taste, are two of my absolute favorite books of Ken's hands down. I mean, I love his his whole breadth of work. but. Those are two that I often recommend to people. I find they're a little more accessible because as you know, Ken's work can get very deep. So before we jump into the movie, because I'm, I'm sure that's going to take up pretty much the bulk of the conversation. I would love if you're cool with it, giving a little background about yourself. Like what led you, um, first of all, to the path, like Ken's work, but not only that in general, what led you to an interest in filmmaking and writing and um, and what you do for a living today. And, and you could start as far back as childhood or wherever, like just tell us a little bit about you and what brought you to where you are today. Can we start with the big bang? <laughs> yes. Let's, can we, can we let's keep it simple. Big bang before this one. Right. Right. <laughs> so yeah, let, I love starting easy. Let's ease listeners in. <laughs> I think, um, you know, as light and as much of a joke as that is, 
right? Sure. That, that there is a deep intuition that echoes out from the origination beyond time. Yeah. And um, there's this, as Ken will write about uh, in many of his books, as is inflected in, in a lot of the work that you are writing that is, um, uh, you know, learned from Ram Das and influenced by, um, there's this initial echo of intuition, of transrational thought. And um, that intuition, that deep, deep impulse, right, the sense of what uh, flower does the bee pollinate, right? Because from a distance to the bee, all flowers look the same. But then when you get up close, just like any fingerprint, they're all so uniquely different. And so how do we differentiate? You know, how do we discern who to love, what vocation to give ourselves to, what choice to make, what's, what's worth the price of the candle, ultimately? What are we really doing here? And I think that that deep intuition is the thing that must guide us, as is inflected deeply in Ken's work and in Ram Dass's work, um, and so then therefore extrapolated by yourself and myself and other writers and other artists and storytellers. So if I think about, you know, if the question is, how did I get in Ken's work? How did I end up doing this film? And what are the things that drive my interest vocationally? Truncated, it's everything interested in consciousness. So it's as a storyteller, where, whether it's in movies, books, meditation, psychology, but they're all closely related. They seem like different fields, but they're all closely integrated. And we can see across those fields the close integration, whether it's... Uh, you know, Fritz Perls being the founder of Gestalt and having an interest in, in theater early on. Um, and then numerous pioneers that cross over, in other words, into what is the stage and what is performance and what is the sense of identity and ego and personality and how do we project those things? And then how do we, as you say, be here now, you know, around us, be here now. You know, what is it that we're paying attention to that's deep within and far beyond? Who is the I beyond I that's really making the decisions? And can we fully give ourselves up to that decision maker. So I would like to answer the question by deferring <laughs> to that decision maker and just saying that out of no cognizant sense, I think since I was a kid, out of no moral sense, but just out of a sense of total surrender, perhaps from tumult, perhaps from confusion, just following that deep intuition that I think probably as a kid, I had some sense of what's really going on here and this world is daunting. And, beautiful and luscious and glorious and tender in so many ways and cruel and intimidating and, 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 and tumultuous in other ways. And so I have to surrender fully to whatever that thing is. And so then I think my interests early on were naturally in things that were soothing for the soul. Um, you know, whether it was poetry or music or movies, you know, that storytelling and theater, poetry, music movies, etc. And so then I think that uh, I had love affairs with a number of different authors. Yeah, from Romano Maharshi to Alan Watts to a number of psychologists and philosophers. And then I thought after Alan Watts, it was never going to happen again like that. Right. And then it did. It happened with Ken Wilber. I started reading his, his works and I was just blown away. And um, a number of years went by before we met. And uh, eventually we met and we were sort of simpatico. And then Grace and Grit, I read late in his work. And then I think that uh, I'll get to defer again to that decision maker beyond that somehow that film chose me, that I said, wow, this is such a powerful story and book. And this would make an amazing movie. And then I found out that many people had come before me to make it and there were already people working on it. Um, so I, I didn't think anything of it. 
But then a, a number of different things unfolded that I ended up being the one to carry the torch for that. Um, I'm deeply grateful to be able to carry that torch. Yeah. And um, it was such a, a, a honor yeah, to tell that story of a book that's impacted so many people around the world, uh, myself included. And also, I think to be able to infuse Ken's work and integral into that movie, into that story, um, subtly. Yeah. So, Subtle. Long story short, I, I didn't make the decision the decision made, and I just was along for the ride, I suppose. Yeah. Right. Well, so, so much that I want to unpack there. First of all, subtly, yes, before I watched the film, I'm like, how, how is this gentleman going to, you know, translate this into film in a way that those who aren't familiar with Ken's work will be able to absorb it? Because um, again, if you jump into one of Ken's other books, um, some of his heavier stuff, like for me, my introduction was his, um, I think it was a 12 CD uh, conversation set with Tammy Simon. It sounds true. Oh, Cosmic oh. consciousness. So I understood maybe 1.3% of that when I heard it, because it was like within the first couple of months over 20 years ago, but when I stepped foot on the path, but it called to me and the seeds were planted. So, mm. you know, I came back and, and found his work again later on and, and he became a friend and um, helped me understand it at a deeper level, uh, much like I'm sure yourself. So yes, you did quite an amazing job of integrating it. Um, my, my lady Carissa ended up watching the movie the same night. She's out in Denver um, and I'm in Connecticut right now. And, and she watched it and she was not familiar with Ken's work. And she was deeply touched, like completely moved by it as I was. And I thought that was an absolutely beautiful testament to the film you created. Um, so before we jump into that, I, I just wanted to go back and revisit. Um, you mentioned I heard tumult and tumultuous, something that resonates with me. Um, I was talking with a friend the other day and, um, you know, we were saying how most people don't come to the spiritual path uh, or call it whatever you care to, but because life is unicorns and rainbows, you know, we're usually stumbling or staggering onto it. In my case, it was like rock bottom addictions and then the bottom gave out and, you know, literally like crawling onto it. Um, so, you know, that said, what were some of those experiences for you? If you're comfortable sharing with them and, and it's okay if not, but also the other thing, and, and if, there's any way you want to tie it together was you mentioned art and poetry early on, like as being a, uh, a deep influence for you for pretty much as far back as you can remember in authors. Um, so I know those are two kind of opposite end questions, but those are two things that really stuck out to me. I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate a little bit more on before we jump into the film. Yeah. I follow with the connection there that uh, um, certainly I, <clears throat> My like father, the grace and the grit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. My, my father was a professor of uh, comparative religions with a specialty in India and was got a job in Hawaii teaching at the University of Hawaii and was there writing and teaching. So we moved there when I was a kid. And then my stepfather lived in South Texas and with my mother. And, you know, we were in, um, you know, church every Sunday. And um, it's like, yes, sir, no, ma'am, and hunting and mm -hmm. fishing. And I'm being you know, very disciplined and, and um, two beautiful worlds, but very, very different. And my father was sort of like just ultra intellectual and very, you know, hyper creative. And so it's sex, drugs and rock and roll and anything goes. So those two worlds were spectacular. But I think as a young boy, you know, at four, five, six, seven, to just be spending just the summers in Hawaii and then just a year with my uh, mother and my stepfather in uh, South Texas, that there were different rules. 
and it was hard to understand what those rules were, you know, when I could cuss, when I couldn't, you know, what was appropriate, what wasn't, and to sort of take these two uh, polar worlds, polar, you know, totally opposite worlds, and reconcile them into sort of one cohesive identity required something sort of beyond or something I had to tap into that seemed true consistently in both worlds. And I think initially those things were like, whether it was poetry, you know, music, you know, by a lot of amazing musicians, whether it was U2 or Marvin Gaye or Roberta Flack mm. or poets like Khalil Gibran or Edgar Allan Poe or, you know, whoever those things were that touching something that said, no matter what world I'm in, I'm finding writers that are, are storytellers or movie makers or musicians that are expressing something that's true to me about heartache and about how after that heartache, whether it's the heartache of disappointment, the heartache of hope, the heartache of desire, but these ultimate things that are really extrapolating upon, you know, tenets of, of, of Buddhism, how do I push through those things uh, to get to some sort of um, equanimity beyond and to still feel passion, but to be able to touch equanimity. And I think that those things all express that, wow, when you're heartache and you're, you're brokenhearted, when we're, when we're brokenhearted, we have to allow it. We can't hold on to it. We can't force it and make it not happen. We have to just allow it. And there's this deep breath through that. So then the tumult at some point becomes, you know, this deep spiritual practice, right? Like in any yogic practice, the stretch begins. The yoga begins when the stretch is challenging, right? Most of us, we get to the point where the stretch, oh, that's a really hard stretch. Okay, let me just lean into that for a few seconds and I'm back off. That's the few seconds where the stretch really begins. And it's the same thing with a spiritual practice. Everybody loves to sit and meditate for 30 minutes or an hour, right? right? A few times for a year or whatever the thing is, but it's after a long time that then we say, wait a second. You know, it's like Chonyam Trungpa writes about <laughs> get excited by the boredom and then get bored with the boredom and then find this space beyond that the boredom is what's really going on all the time. Right. In other words, through my eyes, through your eyes, through our eyes, there's always something, right? Just from being here in, in, a, in, a, dual, in a world of duality, there's always something that's, that's eliciting a response. Desire, thirst, hunger, um, joy, elation, impulse, other people, you know, are, are, you know. But beyond that, there is something that is resonant. Yeah, this causal space uh, that if we can tap into and keep one foot in both worlds, then we can have a sense of, okay, um, my end is not so important, right? That my death is not so important. My uh, mortality is not so important. I want to be here. I want to love this life with everything I can, but I'm not going to hold on to it so much that I'm, that I'm, that I'm forcing the, 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 the honey out of it, I'm forcing the, the, the salt out of it. Um, so I think that the tumult between those two worlds then, like, you know, to, to ground that, it resulted in a lot of intensity. As a young boy, I was intense. I was intense in the way that I was uh, do things physically. I was intense in theater. I wanted to push the limits, you know, of whatever it was, cry, laugh, you know, everything, you know, right. intensity. I wanted to fall madly in love with, with other kids when I was a boy. <laughs> like, it was just like the poetry I'd write it. 10 was like, I'm going to love you forever. <laughs> so intense, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and then that resulted in debauchery too. Yeah. You know, so I sure. rock and roll. I mean, I was really, I started really early on. I, the first time I was, uh, 
Um, I, I smoked a joint, I was nine and got drunk at 12 and, you know, experimented with other drugs at, you know, 14 and 15. And, you know, fortunately, uh, early on enough to see those things as mechanisms that could either be for my growth <clears throat> or mechanisms that could either be for my falling. And so at some juncture, I, I thought, okay, there's something here that's valuable, but there's something here that's really, really dangerous, that's, that's foolish rather than dangerous even. And so fortunately, by luck, um, I was able to, I think, you know, fall deeper in love, so to speak, with um, the expression and the storytelling and, and how ultimately some sense of cohesion was requisite to be able to create depth connection with other individuals. And then ultimately the depth connection was where the, all the magic was at, right? That if success leaves clues that anyone I was admiring throughout history, any great writer, author, musician, it was always about depth connection. Yeah. yeah. And so then I, I think, and I didn't know that, I didn't have that wherewithal then, but I think just right. intuitively would, um, you know, would, would follow that. Does that answer the question? Because I keep talking about the tumult. Yeah. And I, no, you touched on both and then more, which... Um, <laughs> so eloquently worded and um i resonate with pretty much everything you said i feel a kinship with you already um, we were at a bar at some point some many years we, ago, we, right? we <laughs> yes we don't remember <laughs> yes i am sure i am sure um but like right as you quoted trunkpa rinpoche like the two seconds before you did it popped up in my head um not verbatim but something where uh he says like it's better to not undertake the spiritual path whatsoever you know like just don't do it but if you do you have to be willing to go all the way um and again that's not a verbatim quote and i don't remember where that's out of but that's something i read from him that always stuck with me crazy um, yeah okay yeah yeah um and and especially like when you when you are really on this and you're not doing the um i don't i don't mean to jab at anybody but kind of the mindfulness route of the watered down popular quote unquote spirituality that's it's still pretty prevalent today though seems like things are shifting a bit in the direction of looking more at shadow work and going deeper which is wonderful um but yeah when you're really in it um to do this thing it asks everything of you and are you willing you know to go there which very much i can take away from what you've said already and, and just sharing this space with you you certainly have and are as I, I like to think I am too. Um, and what a gift, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. I want to be very clear as, yeah. as you know, that the majesty and magic and beauty is, can be just as overwhelming in a just beautiful way as that pain and tumult can be overwhelming in a, just a heartbreaking, tragic way. Um, beautiful way you're saying, Chris, cause I think, and I think the new age spirituality, you know, the one that you're referencing earlier there is a dangerous drug. Because it gets people to the point where they think love is, you know, where, where what's being sold is read this book and then have equanimity forever. Right. Like, yes. you know, love is a warm hug. It's all going to be okay. You know, thoughts become yeah. things, this kind of magical sort of new age thinking. And, but somebody has to go through that magical stage to get to the rational stage, to get to the transrational stage. They have to go from pre-conventional to conventional to post-conventional to transrational. Right. In other words, somebody has to start somewhere walking before they can run, before they can float, before Great. we can, you know, float, run, float. And um, I have many friends who are at that stage. Yep. Yeah. And um, I've been at that stage. Yeah. And the idea. And then uh, at some point, 
then there's this crush that happens where the, again, where the true spiritual practice really begins. And it's not in the calm of the ocean. It's in the rough, heavy, intense sea. The cool thing, like you're saying, is it's not gloomy. What's amazing is that when you're out there in the deep, rough sea and the crucifixion's coming, you're saying, ah, there's a crucifixion coming. <laughs> but ah, I can taste, as you say, the majesty on the other side of it. And I'm going to stand through the thing. Right. In other words, right, the value of the content of the right. book, when people are peddling books, right, or peddling, you know, music or peddling quick, you know, fix program yeah. to say you can feel good. Now everybody wants a piece of that. Right. Then the people keep, you know, coming back saying, hey, that was good. That was a good fix. But what next It's like even Anthony Robbins will say, like 90 percent of the people read 10 percent of the book. Right. 10% of the people read 90% of the book. There's only a few people that are actually reading the whole book. And the number of people who will get addicted to something that's beautiful. You know, Tony Robbins, amazing communicator, mm. amazing man. You know, but uh, oftentimes people will get hooked on just that high of how good it feels to feel a beat, but then not be able to actually process it and hold it and put it into a discipline, a discipline yeah. of loving, a discipline of, of, of transcendence, a spiritual discipline that allows us to continually overcome. So I, yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I will own as well. Like it, in a way, it's almost like a rite of passage for most people. I think like we, we step on the path and it's like a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend. We're so excited. And, you know, for me, I certainly spiritualized my ego, like as much as anyone else could, um, you know, I wore the models. I learned the lingo. I was, you know, trying to like fit in, in a way that, you know, made sense to me at the time. And that's why I said, you know, I'm not taking a jab because I totally do get that. Um, you know, I think part of the danger is, and I have a friend named uh, Jeff Brown, who's a wonderful writer. Um, and he calls it the new cage movement. And he, like, I'm, I'm not one to mince words. He goes even farther than, than I will at times, but, um, he also lost a friend who ended up committing suicide because she had stepped foot onto the path and was into some, I won't name names, but you know, some of the more popular teachers that essentially, you know, it's kind of, they're offering a bandaid when you need like a, a surgery in, in certain circumstances. And in this case, she ended up taking her life and, and he, and, and I have seen people that they do step on the path and the majority do end up at some point sooner or later taking that next step into the depths, like you were mentioning, but there are those that don't. And I think that's where part of the danger lies in some of the teachings is that um, people aren't encouraged. And, and yes, these books are being you know, pumped out like a lot of popular music, you know, that's like plastic, it's factory made essentially. And just let's, let's give people what makes them happy. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think with this, um, when it, for some people it is life or death, it's just something that needs to be handled very skillfully and um and that's not always the case but um and also the other thing i noticed too or came up for me when you said um we want to feel good even for me um uh and and not not that long ago i caught myself falling back into this meditating as a means of aversion rather than going deeper into myself it was a sense of just dropping out for a little while and not having to deal with life um because it felt good and it was transcendent but um Luckily, I, I caught myself like, oh, you're doing that again. No judgment, just where I was and I'll come back. You know, you're meditating for, for other reasons um, than just to drop out. Beautiful. There's so few people on the planet will have the capacity to say that. Yeah. And that, and that, that is like what you touched there is really, that's really the crux 
you know, that's really the, the, the point where people are looking at that uh, saying, okay, I'm going to meditate and make everything okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that becomes a, a, an egoic, a self-centered saying, well, I'm going to just feel good. Right? Nothing wrong with that. All fantastic. But as you're sure. saying, as avoidance, I mean, that's, you know, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant mm-hmm. because uh, so few people are able to actually sit in that place. Say, okay, look, I'm going to have this sense of, I'm going to have this meditative practice. I mean, to ground, but I'm also going to go in deep. Yeah, I'm also going to explore my shadow. Where am I showing up for myself, for the vocation, for other people in a way that is in service or that is a way that is selfish? And where can I catch it? Yeah, you know, where can I see it? Yeah, Um, it's interesting because, you know, if I know that, like, in terms of, like, having an integral practice, if I'm combining a number of different things, like you're saying, you know, whether it's a meditative practice and playing chess and reading and exercise and, you know, uh, you know, practice between another individual or multiple individuals um, and being fully in service, that everything runs smoother. That I'm better. I, f- I find myself being more dexterous as a chess player. I find myself processing more as a reader, as a, you know, as an absorber of content, that it's giving me a richer, lucid dreamscape, um, that I'm showing up better in the world, that I'm feeling more excited to have eye contact with other beings. Yeah. Uh, and then that's like, wow. Like, and then it's like, then there's this sort of, this tap in, you know, you say, okay, this is a nice tap in. And, uh, this is worth it. All that commitment is really something happening there that, that then it's no longer worth the commitment. The next stage is, oh, I have to have that. Yes. Yeah. It's like, I know. I was just gonna say, yeah, like again, chills while you're saying that because that's it's it there's been so many times in my life it's like, what is this all for? You know, and and that's where faith for for me, and, and I know that can be a loaded word for some people, but faith in those who have walked this path and left the lights uh, you know, for me, uh, as I'm coming up the trail, they left little lanterns, metaphorically speaking, um, as they carried on. And so reading things from Ken and, and his experiences or, or Ram Das or, you know, whomever it may be um, of the many teachers, Alan Watts, Ramana Maharshi, all teachers, Trungpa, um, and, and of course, um, Pema Chodron and Sally Kempton and, you know, not to Sharon Salzberg, Tara Brock, all of these wonderful, just illuminated teachers and back to Nagarjuna and, and you know, you, you know all too well, but um, knowing that these people walked you know, these steps and they all started somewhere too. And some of them maybe had less karmic uh, residue that they needed to work through. Um, like Ramana, for example, at such a young age with his experience. And, uh, but either way, just to know that uh, I'm not alone in that. And that again, faith, like I, my heart feels the transmission of these teachers. So I have faith and trust in what they're saying. And that at times has been all that's sustaining me was that belief that not all of them can be bullshitting me, you know, like I don't believe that. And, uh, and, and luckily I've had enough experiences at this point, especially recently with that trip to Mount Shasta, I mentioned mm-hmm. where it all, like it was, it was too much. It was like in a beautiful way, you know, just too much. So. Ooh. I think, you know, I think it's important to like you know, for anyone who's, you know, for listeners on this is, is like to, you know, because this, it, you know, for people who are ultra intellectual as a lot of your audience will be, Right, that we have a danger also of intellectualizing things. Yes. But even like to ground all this and to say like everyone who's listening is you know tapping into this right now, just taking a deep breath. Right. And 
And there is a sense of gratitude saying, hey, there may be a lot of challenging things in my life, but you know what? I'm just grateful to be right here, right now, talking with you, just sharing here. And then all of a sudden the, it starts to feel better, you know, and that's, yes. that's the basic practice. That's, and when you mentioned equanimity, for me, that was one of the hardest things because stuck in my head, overthinker, overanalyzer, part of why I was attracted to Ken's work in the first place, but uh, making that trip from the head to the heart. And that's where teachings from like Pema children and, and others, you know, about equanimity and um, finding the, you know, the sense of um, logic is still important. We can't just throw that completely out yet at the same time for me, especially, um, and, and a lot of people that I've talked to is learning to trust in the feelings and the, the intuition and the sensations. And Andrew Harvey calls it the, the direct path uh, of experience and uh, which has its own pitfalls because it can very easily be wrapped up in ego and, you know, which we aren't aware of, it kind of slips back in the back door. We might have the purest of intentions consciously, but it's such a tricky thing, this whole spiritual business, but um, wouldn't trade it for the world. And even that, like for listeners, I have a lot of listeners that don't like that word. And I understand it's, you know, it's just a word. Um, I don't think it does. No word in words in, in the English language will ever do justice to the experience. Um, and that's why as I know, Ken talks about the importance, especially as you're going up from the, the levels and lines on his quadrants, um, that direct experience that's um, beyond doubt um, that, you, you know, it doesn't matter what anyone else says, they were not in your body and your skin having that experience. And that experience, when it gets potent enough, is for me an experience of non-experience, you know, like, holy shit, Chris has left the building and there's just this awareness of like, you know, I am. As Ken would say, I am capital I, capital A, I am, or Ram Das, I am loving awareness and just anchoring into that. And um, yeah, I've had that experience. I've talked about on the show at a Slayer concert of all places, the most heaviest of metal bands ever. And I was up front, I had a photo pass and I was doing the I am loving awareness mantra, photographing Slayer, flames shooting up on stage. I looked around behind me, thousands of people going crazy. And Instead of doing the mantras, Ram Dass would say the mantra started doing me and it was cyclical and it was just an experience of the interconnectedness of all beings in that moment. There was no more separation. It was just the flames and the, the amps in an upside down cross position and people like, you know, with the devil horns up and it was, it was sublime. Um, and that's another way that I know that it's, it's very real. It was a direct experience that no one can take from me. I was completely sober. And it was at a Slayer concert. So if it can happen there um, it, to such a degree that it did, what, what a real thing. So and maybe even it's not that no one can take that experience from you, but it's that nothing can take you from that experience, mm. right? That, that experience is happening over the course of the unfolding of millions of years, but beyond time, it's unfolding in time right in, in years and then all of a sudden that experience drops through you right, right. And, and that's it you know there's that moment where it's like the experience is here the thing is here like the, the, the electrical current of love and there's crisscross of the slur concert it's coming through there right and then it's coming through somewhere else and it's coming through somewhere else and it's coming through somewhere else right and we're dropping we're opening up to that thing yeah and then there's this awareness of the eye beyond eye you know right eye beyond chris that is the this this ultimate you know experience or that you know god is an you know you're an aperture right we're all apertures through which god is able to experience duality yeah right you are like really 
digging it, getting it, man. It's, oh, it's delicious. I feel like I'm yeah. at that concert, you know? Yes, it was, uh, it was awesome. Yeah. Um, but absolutely the dual housed within the, the non-dual, you know, it's, it's, Something that I, I've learned is just honoring the humanity aspect of this, which you very much cover in the film. And maybe this is a great segue because I'm going to have to have you back on the show. Um, first of all, thank me, thank you for indulging me in this. Um, you did such a wonderful job on the film. I really wanted to get to know the person behind that because while this is Ken and Trey's story, you're the one who brought that vision to life. So you're ingrained in this as well at the same time, at least from my experience. So, you know, I. I, I won't lie to you. I was scared going into it because that Grace and Grit, like we were saying earlier, is um, that's my favorite book. One Taste is right up up there, but Grace and Grit is definitely my favorite. I've read it many times over and um, it's illumined me. It's broken my heart. Um, I've laughed. I've cried. I've, you know, and I've talked to Ken personally about a lot of the things in there. And um, and so I was nervous going into this film, just like uh, when they adapted uh, Walk the Line, Johnny Cash's story, one of my all-time, no, my all-time favorite musician. And and I think uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon did a great job just for, so that's on the record, but I was nervous. And so the same feeling was here. And I will tell you, Sebastian, within, I don't know, a minute um, where, uh, you know, he, he was, Ken was meeting Trey with Roger and, um, and that was very interesting to me uh, or within a few minutes. So whenever that happened, um, because the first time I met Ken in person, Roger was there and uh, Ken invited me to speak out at the, uh, what, I don't know if it was what next or what now conference, but yeah. yeah, So I was out there and, um, and the day I flew into Denver, he said, come up to the loft. And so, yeah, I I was there with him and, and Roger happened to be there. And it was just such a cool experience to not only get to finally meet Ken in person, but oh, no big deal. Roger's sitting there and that's cool. And um, so anyways, I am not embarrassed in the slightest to say for probably about 80 to 85% of this film, I cried. And some of it was um, crying out of just the haunting pain I was experiencing. Some of it was just crying out of sheer joy and, and delight. Um, but it was a very visceral experience for me. And I say that with, uh, as, a, as a compliment. That's why I love authors like Charles Bukowski when I read him, even though it can be and his stuff is way different than what you did, but like anything that makes me feel on a very deep level, I absolutely adore. In this film, um, when I when I emailed Cassie, I said this film has struck me like no other film in years like that I can remember. So, all that to say, <laughs> um, you did an amazing job, uh, and that doesn't even do justice to to how I feel about the film. Um, but let me start by, for anyone that's not interested, or not interested, I'm sorry, that's not familiar with Grace and Grit, there's a little movie synopsis that I have from the press kit, very brief. I want to read that just so people understand what we're talking about. And also I want to say, I'm going to have to have you back on the show because I want to talk more to you about you. And I could spend this whole time just continuing our conversation, but I want to promote this film and your art. So let me uh, do that and then we'll have to schedule time to get you back on. Um but so the movie synopsis, uh, Grace and Grit tells the true story of iconic philosopher Ken Wilber, played by Stuart Townsend, and his wife Treya, played by Mina Saviri, uh, Savari, excuse me, a wonderful actress. Uh, based on the acclaimed book chronicling Treya's journals, journal, yeah, journals, they fall madly in love in 1980s California and are immediately faced with challenges that tear them apart. They overcome by discovering connection beyond this world and love beyond life. So. 
There was also in the press kit, and and I don't usually use stuff like this, but I, I thought you worded it so well. There's a couple of pieces I pulled from that that I wanted to share with the listeners and and kind of use as a segue for you to expand on and and go in any other direction. But if if you don't mind me um, reading a, a couple of these things, I would love to do that. Um, so one of them, uh, it had said, and, and you already touched on this a little, but to reiterate, when I first read Grace and Grit, it shook me. I couldn't stop thinking about it. Then I read about how others around the world felt the same way, that this story offered some sort of hope about life, that it per- per- perhaps conveyed a meaning about what we are ultimately doing here. The book left me in tears, yet somehow inspired. I felt that Ken and Trey's story epitomized what was possible with romantic, courageous, compassionate, fearless, and ultimately selfless love. It marked a standard for relationships that I already intuited was alive within me, yet that I still wish to experience in this lifetime. So the, when you said it shook you, those were verbatim. As soon as I was messaging um, Carissa, who I mentioned earlier, my, my lady, the words I used were, um, this film just shook me to the core. It, it shook me in my bones. Um, it was the most hauntingly beautiful thing I've experienced in, in a long time. So it was interesting to me that you used that it shook me because that's a, that's a bold statement. Um, so I was wondering, you know, boy, where to go with this? Um, can you, I know you've already talked a little bit about it, but can, can you walk readers through your experience reading Grace and Grit? Um, maybe for the first time or even the second time and, and why it struck you so deeply? What was it? about the story that really just called to your heart and, and had whatever uh, effects on you that it did? I read it, I'd already read Sex, Ecology, Spirituality and A Brief History of Everything and mm-hmm. Integral Psychology and No Boundary and a number of other Ken's books. And yeah. this was the first book of his that I read that was a story with characters that weren't conceptual that weren't God and spirit and et cetera, right? And um, so it was such a deeply personal story for a guy, a man, a thinker who's so reclusive that you can't find many photographs of, you can't find many real interviews with, you know, throughout history, um, that he has like, he'll do a talk on something. But in this book, he goes so open and transparent. Yeah. Yeah, and it was, wow, yeah, to be able to see that. You know, like, uh, if you have a great thinker, like, you know, Socrates, Plato, or Aristotle, or Ramon Maharshi, or, you know, Jung, or Freud, to be able to get in their heads and get in their hearts and get in the sense of the, the, the people behind the beings that are some sort of portal for such brilliant, extraordinary expression of what's happening here in life. And, um, you know, Ken is that guy. He's the lighthouse. And uh, so to read that, you know, to jump right in there, I'd say like, you know, after reading someone that we love, an author that we love or a musician that we love, we open it up by saying, okay, I'm excited to get into this thing. So I was excited to get into it. And then I opened the first few pages and right away, it was so intimate. The first pages, that was so emotional. And the first 20 pages is so romantic, right? I mean, it's so romantic. Yeah, and it just pulled me right in. And I think as a book, because for people who haven't read it, it's written by her journals, and then it's also Ken's experience of what happens at that time. So it's written by two authors, essentially. Yeah. And then he has a 
you know, he then describes what was occurring between them psychologically and spiritually. And then they also have the sequences of their dreams that are in italics. So what an intense book. And yeah. you would go to a bookstore back then. You didn't know if it was going to be in spirituality or biography or psychology or, you know, you didn't know where it was going to be because it was, you know, all these different things in one. No, a book's never been written like this book before ever. Right. And so when I got into it, I didn't even know what to expect. And, um, and I think the book is experiential. Right. The book is 400 pages. Most people love the first 100 pages and then they get to about page 250 and they're like, OK, now it's getting really brutal and I can't take it anymore. I get it. I know what happens at the end. But they're only halfway there. And that's exactly what happens in most yoga practices, in most gymnast practices and most distance swimming practices and most healing practices and in most spiritual practices. We get to the point where we say, oh, I already think I know. But, of course, in Grace and Grit, at page 250, it gets intense and it gets heavy and heavier and heavier and then lighter, really light and then really heavy again. And then if you can stay in it at the end, it's like the whole thing has been simmering slowly, this slow cooking meal that at the end it just boom, it's this grenade, right? At the very end, the last pages, you're like, oh, my God. And I mean, and everyone around the world feels like that. You don't have to like the book. You don't have to enjoy the experience. But sure. everyone around the world, for the most part, feels like that. Yeah. Um, Francis Fisher, who plays the, Nina's mother in the movie, you know, uh, she's a dear friend and has done a couple projects with me. And I gave her the book. And, you know, she would message me. And then when she read the script, you know, she would say, oh, my God, Sebastian, I, I'm reading it so slowly. I don't want it to end. I've got like seven pages left. And I don't I don't want to finish it tonight because I don't want it to come to the last page. You know, I'm crying my eyes out. And the number of people have told me that I've given the book to and then later the script to. So the end was so like, you know, like in Titanic or like in any great love story. Right. The lovers have to be torn apart. It's the, it's the, you know, the, the confronting of our own mortality that allows us to know that love lives on, that this flower falls from the tree, but another flower will bloom. We will ultimately bloom as another flower. Yeah, and this song is going on. And it's happening through us. And I think that that book expressed this song of love. Yeah, this song of of. of Eros, this song of, of ultimately this transcendent music that was happening through these two glorious individuals. And it showed them in their absolute best and their absolute worst. Yeah. That we get to experience rising up with them, fumbling, falling, getting totally scraped up and rising again. And wow, when we can say that and look at that and observe that between two hugely admirable human beings and we say well all right i know what's possible within me this is a reference point for what's possible this is a reference point for what's possible in forgiveness that i can forgive myself i can forgive another this is a reference point for what's possible in commitment this is the kind of commitment that someone can give a man to a woman a woman to a man or, 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 or two men or two women or friends or lovers or father and and mother and child and you know vocation whatever the thing is whatever the service is this is a reference point for what's possible in commitment ultimately this is a reference point for what's possible in love we 
come up with new architecture, new poetry, new books, new songs, all about love. Because we're always trying to seek how do we find that thing? How do we open up to that current in our life? That it always can elude us and throw us off and then we open up to it and it feels so good when we open up to it. And this book is a reference point on how to open up to it, on how to surrender and allow love in. Yeah. Not concerned with whether it shatters us, not concerned with whether it makes us fly high, but to open up whatever love is going to bring. And so that's what I... When I say shaken by the book, that's what I experienced when I read. Mm. So I'm not going to bother reading the other thing out of the statement because I just I want to flow with you here on this, um, and and that's how I like the conversations to go. I think we've already kind of covered some of it, anyways. But so you take this just incredible book, like you said, 400 pages, and distill it into an hour and 50 minute movie. There was, as you were saying earlier, um, or as I said, you made it very accessible, I think, to viewers that aren't familiar with Ken's work. Now, I hope they that those who watch the film go and read the book, because, of course, there's so much more in those pages. Um, so I'm curious, how did you decide which, I mean, there were the obvious parts you needed to include, but aside from those, like, how did you decide what what to take, especially in regards to like the parts where Ken gets pretty heavy in his teachings. There are sections where he will go into, you know, the, um, the casting of the net and, and, you know, playing hide and seek the Leela, the dance and, and, you know, my words, but he talks about a lot of that throughout the book. And there were sequences in the movie, like where, um, I remember when earlier on, when Ken was laying down in his bed and, um, Treya was in her bed or Stuart and, and uh, Mina in this case, and he's thinking and you see him kind of sit up and then she's thinking and, and that gets into some of the more like cosmic consciousness kind of uh, vibe, but again, distilled and shared in a way that's easy to, I think at least um, understand and follow. So yeah. How did you, I know you said the film called you, so maybe that's similar. Like you, you just, did you intuitively know what needed to be in there? Um, or, you know, were there conscious choices? Did you talk to Ken about it? Like, what was the process of putting that all together? And then follow-up question. I'll, I'll get to that after. I don't want to cloud you too much. Let's go with that for now. So, to, to yes, I wanted to make something accessible. Um, you know, my first documentary was like 90 minutes, and it was all philosophy. It was a lot of stuff in there, and I loved it. And I screened it in Hawaii, and a lot of people came. Everyone in the philosophy department loved the movie. Everyone else said, this is what the hell just happened in this movie. What is that, what is that called? Because I want to check it out. Awakening World. And it's a very simple 40-minute accessible documentary. What's the purpose of life? What's love? What's heaven? What's hell? What's intimacy? The trailer's everywhere. Awakening World. Okay. Beautiful, simple, very accessible film. Um, and what ultimately came from that film is the value. Of, I put the whole thing on my American Express card. You know, it's the devotion to these exploration of these questions, purpose, yeah. love, heaven, hell, intimacy. And what was of value was the discussion that people would have afterwards. What is love? What mm -hmm. is intimacy? What is the heaven and the hell that we can create? Right? What is purpose? And so, in that same way, <clears throat> if it's not accessible, no one's going to open up to it. Right? Right. So I know that you know. Ken Wilber, you know, there are many brilliant authors out there who are hugely popular because they are accessible. And these authors are so important in and of themselves, but also as gateways to, to, to deeper practices. Ken is not that accessible. He doesn't write books for popular consumption. Right. He's not trying to. 
He could easily. He's not trying to. He's trying to push the edge of consciousness. He's writing what's coming through him. So automatically there's a simpatico between any two people. Anyone who's listening to this, if you want to run an experiment, take a Ken Wilber book, whether you've read it or not, and carry it around for a month. You will make some amazing friends. Not a lot of people will come up to you and ask you about that book. But the people who do, you're going to hit it off with. promise you that. In other words, there is a requisite entry point where if you're reading Ken Wilber, it means you've already read 100 other books, right, or a dozen other books. That you've already read a certain amount of philosophy, psychology, etc. For anyone who's not already reading his work, No Boundary, Grace and Grit, Up from Eden, um, uh, One Taste, those are the most accessible works. Right. Best first reads. If somebody's reading an enormous amount of philosophy, psychology, spirituality, probably a brief history of everything is the great. Yes, one. I love that. But point being is that I wanted to make something. I wanted to tell this glorious story of Grace and Grit in a way that somebody would not need to be familiar with him. Um, that they could be, and that I need to serve that audience. I need to serve that story. I need to obviously honor, above all, Trey and Ken. Um, but that I want to welcome people into the table. I want to welcome people in to say, hey, this is what's possible with love. This is how what I discovered what was possible as a reference point in love. And so I'd love you to take a glimpse of this. Um, like the book is experiential. At page 250, you want to tap out and then you stay in there and it's glorious and majestic. The movie is the same way. This is not a movie uh, for everyone. Uh, it is a movie for everyone. But it is not a movie that um, is a light popcorn fare. Somebody has to be willing to say, like the Tree of Life or like the Fountain or like Black Swan, I'm going to sit in this thing and feel what's going on here. Anybody who wants a real emotional intellectual experience is going to love this movie. That's our hope. Um, But I wanted to make it a little bit wider so that if somebody at home wants that experience, but they're with someone who doesn't, they can still enjoy it together and have a good conversation about it. Yeah. right. Which you definitely did. And when I say accessible, I want to be clear. I don't think you took it this way, but for listeners, it is not watered down at all. And and you make a good point because even though it's accessible, it's not a movie for everybody, for sure. If you're, uh, no, I don't want to say, I was going to say, if you're like in a depressed state, you might want to wait to watch it, but it, who knows? It could be the key that unlocks that depression for you. Who am I to say, you know, what someone else should or shouldn't do. But for, for me, um, so I, f- before I go further, I love that thing about carrying a Ken book around with you and just see what happens. Um, it made me think of, this probably like five years ago, I was in a Goodwill and I don't remember exactly which, it could have even just been like the essential Ken Wilbur or something like that. I found it for $2 and I picked it up for a friend and I was standing in line and there was an older gentleman behind me and he goes, and, and, you know, if you see me, I'm covered in tattoos, like a, a hardcore punk rock, hip hop kind of skateboarder. And. And he looked at me and he, he kind of had this confused look and he was like, Ken Wilbur. And I was like, yeah, you heard of him. He goes, yeah. He goes, you've heard of him. I go, yeah, he's actually a friend. He wrote the forward for my second book. We've done programs together. And this guy wouldn't believe me. It was so funny. Like, he's like, no. And I was like, no, I, I'm serious. And, um, everyone else I'd met, this is the one Ken interaction that was a little weird for me, but, um, I had just come from the library around the corner. This is in Middletown, Connecticut, and they have a really wonderful library called Russell Library. And they have um, a bunch of like a ton of Ken stuff. That's where I found Cosmic Consciousness many years ago. Um, and they have my books. And I said to him, I'm like, are you familiar with Russell Library? And he goes, yeah. And I go, he's like, I have a card there. And I said, well, if you want, here's the name of the book. You can go take a look. Ken wrote the foreword. And 
anyways, he ended up messaging me. He found me on social media. He's like, I'm sorry I doubted you. And, and you know, it was just a really nice exchange. And I'm grateful that he saw that it's not just the quote unquote typical intellectual looking people that resonate. It can be anybody. And and that's what I love about Ken too, is that he does not give a shit about external uh, appearances. He is more, I think, and I don't mean to speak for him, but much more interested in the person and the uh, intent, their integrity. Like you said, he could, of course, write a best-selling book. You know, he knows that equation, or he has written best-selling, but I mean like a watered-down, sells trillions of copies. Um, I, I know for listeners, he's turned down Oprah on several occasions for interviews. To me, that's integrity. Like, you know, you can, if you could go on Oprah, like that's going to be a, you know, obviously a, a career boost, but Ken's not interested in that. And um, I wrote a piece for Huffington Post about like, I think it was called Who is Ken Wilber? Because it's either you know him or you don't. And I just wanted to introduce more people to his work. Um, hence why we're having this conversation as well. And I want to honor your art. But um, yeah, that's what I love about Ken. And, um, and he's just in it for uh, the raw authenticity and, and expanding and pushing the boundaries of consciousness and helping us and 600 page books like his trilogy, you know, the religion of tomorrow, one of his more recent works. And I was talking to him the other day and he's working on another 600 page. Anyways, absolutely love that. If you have any comments on that, please feel free. And then I, the other part I wanted to ask about the filming was, um, I found it so ethereal and so like hauntingly beautiful. It had this vibe, this energy to it without even the actor, uh, without Stuart or, or Mina or Mariel Hemingway, who's in it, or Francis, who you mentioned, it had this very, just like ethereal is the word that's coming to mind. Um, and hauntingly beautiful were two things I felt and visceral. Um, so that was the, the second part of the question I was asking you before is I loved if you could talk about that, was that intentional? Did that just kind of unfold as you were making it? So yeah, if you had any feedback on what I just said, please feel free and then back mm -hmm. to the film. Yeah, the, in terms of the spark, uh, like what you were saying specifically about interiors, and in other words, being interested in individuals, whoever the individuals are, however life and God shows up, the spirit shows up, the electrical spark shows up in ways that we're never going to know. No matter how brilliant any individual is, we're never as brilliant as the edge of consciousness extrapolation. So we always have to be humbled by that and allow it to come through. And it might just come through, boom, and that little we might see something in the eyes of that puppy or that baby or that other person or that thing that we, this person that we presume something about that we like or don't like. Right. You spark. In other words, we can't see it if we're not available to it. But if we're available to it, all of a sudden, it starts showing up everywhere. Yes. Right? Synchronicity starts happening all the time. The wider our eyes are open, the more synchronistic occurrences we're experiencing because everything is intertwined. Right, by just common sense, you know, in a very Alan Watts kind of way, just by common sense, everything is in twine. Um, I saw this, I like to watch a lot of true story movies, and I, was, I watched mm -hmm. recently The Man Who Knew Infinity, this was about Ramanujan, and this, you know, yeah. he's a clerk in India, and then he goes, you know, to, he's trying to go to Oxford or Cambridge, and nobody wants to accept him because he's a clerk, and he's written this brilliant theorem, and everyone's like, this is nonsense, it's, can't, it's not possible. And then finally one guy reads it, and he's like, oh my God, he's brilliant, we have to invite him, and they invite him, and he really changes mathematics. Yeah, and it's between 1914 and 1919 during the Spanish flu, and then he, he passes. You know, but it, it had someone not been open to this young guy, uneducated, but he just had this spark in new mathematics, you know, in such a way, you know, that somebody said, I want to collaborate with this guy. And I think that 
what you're saying about, you know, Ken or, or anyone else who's brilliant, you know, there is a CEO level and the CEO's job is to say no. In other words, it's to be conservative in any company because it's to keep the company afloat and be conservative. Don't take risks that are going to sink the company. But the visionary, that person's job is to say yes, right? Because that's the person who starts the company when everyone says it's impossible to start this company. So the visionary is oftentimes going to take a risk on someone who's not a CEO, whereas the CEO will not, right? Because vision is more open-minded, right? In other words, pre-conventional, conventional, post-conventional, but post-conventional is more open-minded than conventional. Pre-conventional is very open-minded. That's why, as Ken talks about the pre-trans fallacy without going on a tangent, those two things look alike from the outside in. Point being that the spark can happen, yeah, anywhere. And, uh, and I think that that's one of the things that I get from the writings of whether it's Joseph Campbell or Alan Watts or Ram Dass or Ramana Maharshi or Ken Wilber, is that I allow myself to be open to the miracle and the miracle's out there. It's not, I'm not waiting for it to happen. It's happening. Where can I see it? You know what I mean? Like, just turn on the show. It's everywhere, right? Like, get Satori and look around. <laughs> right? Right? Yes. So um, open-mindedness uh, and the availability to allow the miracle in is, is huge. Um, otherwise, I never would have directed this film. Um, I was available to all the yeses and the noes, the noes that opened other doors, you know, and the yeses that I never thought were correct, that I didn't necessarily think were correct or not correct, but that I allowed in that were like amazing in ways that beyond my imagination. Um, uh, what you touched on there about creating the ambiance of sort of uh, ethereal intensity, a kind of um, beyond life that ultimately this is, you know, it's a story, man beats woman, they fall in love, there's a challenge, um, you know, they come together, it's very romantic, they come apart, there's a reconciliation, and then she passes at the end. So, simple plot, right, basic love story, Titanic, Romeo and Juliet, love story, The Notebook, etc., all the same story. But really, this is a book, this is a story, this is a movie about love beyond life. Yeah, it's a story about transcendence, it's a story about the moon, the sun, the stars, as is happening through these two individuals, as is happening through us. And it is experiential. I want the audience to sit in the movie and experience the hope, the romance, the letdown, the elation, the majesty. And so in order to do that, um, that's expressed through those brilliant actors. It's expressed through the set design, through the colors, it's expressed through the light, it's expressed through the music. And it's all these things that, Film is a very unique medium to be able to, in such a short period, in 90 minutes or two hours, to be able to experience all these things, to suffuse, in other words, 400 plus pages of experience as a teaser um, in just an hour and a half or two hours. If somebody's interested in Ken Wilber, check this out. It'll open up, uh, you up to, it'll open audiences up to his work in some way that's not heady. You know, it's not a heady film. It's heady for people who are already heady, but it's an yeah. emotional film, yeah? And, um, and so to convey those things, uh, you know, just as a craftsman, as a, as a director, there's a very specific, um, you know, choices made around actors, made around colors, made around costumes, made around locations, homes, music, light, lenses, every single detail. Yeah, in order to subtly convey those things that any specific audience person, unless they're a, a filmmaker, probably won't notice, but that are used as mechanisms yeah, to try to create that feel 
um, yeah. like in a black swan or like in uh, the fountain or like in the tree of life. Uh, right. Did you see Malik's new film, a uh, recent film, maybe a year and a half ago, um, uh, um, A Hidden Life? No, I've not seen that. Love that. that. It's a beautiful film. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm. I have to grab a pen after we get off. I'm going to reach out some things down you've mentioned. Um, beautiful film, and I bring it up because it's experiential, and <clears throat> his style in that is, um, you know, pertinent to Grace and Grit. Is I want to feel. I want the audience to feel a flux of time, so that we get in in, in the first three minutes. It's who, what, when, where, why. We know exactly who, what right. they're doing. We get. We're right there with them, and slowly I want to bend time a little bit forward, a little bit back because that's how we experience our life. We think right. about our love for our, who, any being in our life. We think about the moment we feel through a feeling. There's a, a subtle, there's a subtle flavor. There's a subtle echo that lets us know that experience with that person or with those people. And if I can convey that in film, um, then, and if it can take the audience there, if the audience can go there, then that really feels like after even just, you know, an hour and 48 minutes, it feels like, wow, I've really been with these people for, you know, I, I really get the sense of scope of many years in just this short period. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you did a, a just an incredible job of distilling that down again from 400 pages into that time. Um, so I know we're a little over in time. Can I can I hold you up for uh, another minute or two? Because sure. uh, there's a couple of things I definitely wanted to ask you. I mean, I'm a ton of things. Like I said, we're gonna have to find a time to get you back on. But um, so no spoilers here. Uh, I mean, Treya dies at the end. That's you've already said that. Um, I, you know, the word emotional you've mentioned a few times, and and as I said, I cried through the majority of this film. A lot of it was a, a a cry of joy. A lot of it was a cry of pain, and especially knowing Ken on a personal level. No, you know, it doesn't matter if you see this book and, and or this film, excuse me, you'll feel it. But if you've read the book and and have a little more context, I think it might lend itself to an even deeper experience, perhaps. Um, but that final scene. Um, towards well before you show the actual footage of, of Treya um where where Stuart's holding Mina as she's you know uh, Treya is transitioning Ken is, is holding Treya um that elicited in me such like an ugly cry I was literally gasping for breath like I, I could barely breathe it was so intensely emotional for me mm -hmm. um yeah like I'm actually starting to tear up a little bit right now just seeing it um or in my mind's eye, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it as I'm talking about it. Um, and after the film ended, when you, you know, you go to Trey and, and there's a little bit of Ken's actual voice talking. Um, I watched the credits all the way through, which I never do. Not, I think because I wanted to give credit to everyone who worked on the film being transparent here. I just, I couldn't move. I was just like sobbing and trying to breathe. And uh, I remember texting uh, the woman, Chris, I've mentioned a few times, like, I, I can't breathe. Like, um, I, I, I was nervous I was going to have an anxiety attack. Um, it, it was just, I felt it. And I don't want to scare anyone away. It was just, it was that beautiful. It was that beautiful that it, it hit me so hard. So, you know, I, I don't know anything about, about filmmaking. Well, I know very little about filmmaking, but while you were there working on that scene um, and, and, you know, you know, Ken, and you know, that story. How was that for you? Um, and maybe just me as as a viewer, like maybe there were other scenes you directed that were more powerful for you. I don't know, but for me as a viewer, that scene just it it like destroyed me in a beautiful way. Um, so how was that like for you filming that and putting that to to screen? 
First of all, thank you. That is beautiful. I, uh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's why I made this picture to, you know, to have for someone like you to have an experience like that. Thank you so much. And that yeah. gives me a sense that I've done duty yeah? Um, yeah. in service um, because that's why I love the book and that's why I wanted to make it into a film. Um, as a craftsman in just sort of very practical ways to take a step away from the ethereal and the abstract, um, I break the book down into four 100 page sections and um, decide what to leave in, what stays in, uh, is left out but stays in just uh, metaphorically, you know, sure. you pick up a lot on, you know, what of his work gets put in there. There's a little bit of the lingo in there, there's a little bit of the philosophical integral vernacular in there at some point. Um, but you know, I don't want to make it heady, so I put a lot of that stuff in there and imagery and, and, and music and um and there are so many scenes, you know, when I was adapting the screenplay, uh I took a period of I don't know how long, a few weeks, to the final, my final first draft, where I, you know, I'm acting out every part because I want to make sure every part is true. So every role I'm literally acting it out with you know myself and I'm feeling it and I you know, and I'm crying when I'm writing it and I'm laughing when I'm writing it. And, and someone was staying with me at the time for that period, you know, and, and I would catch myself once in a while. I'd look up and I'm doing a full scene, you know, when I'm at the, you know, I look like a crazy person, right? <laughs> um, and so I cried enormously, uh, obviously, uh, when I was writing it. And then, um, you know, and then in the editing of it and then in, in the casting of it and then, you know, and then in the shooting of it, um, it's really fun. Like, there's nothing like shooting a movie. It's wonderful, yeah. And you know, to see that come alive, you know, through these actors and through all the other mechanisms that deliver it onto the screen is spectacular. So, you know, when we got to that scene, and I shot mostly chronologically, I wanted, if we could, uh, it's just with a story that takes place over six years, five years. It's great for the crew. It's great for the actors to be able to have a sense of the chronology. Um, um, it's great for makeup. It's great for everybody. Yeah. If you can do it, if and when you can do it. So we did most, most for the most part. So that was one of the last things that we shot. Um, I love movies. And I, there are so many movies that have affected me since I was a kid. Mm. And I've never seen, I've seen some great scenes of passing of death. But I thought, you know, I, I really want to do something that is both A, true to the source material true to their experience, true to her journals, true to his writing, but also that's never been done in film that I'm aware of, that, that's something that's so real. In other words, I have a duty to anyone who's ever loved someone who's died in their arms. I have a duty to every single one of those people, both the person who is dying and passing and the person who is holding that love, whether it is a child or a lover or a sibling or a parent. And it doesn't happen like it happens in the movies. It happens like this. It happens like it happens in this movie. Yeah. I wanted to just deliver that as real as I possibly could. And these two brilliant actors, Stuart and Mina, I could not imagine retrospectively any other two actors on the planet playing these roles. Yeah. Um, and it just was, I, the, the timing was right there and it just came through and, um, you know, and it was spectacular to shoot it. When we were actually shooting that scene, we have a, a what's called a, a closed set, you know, so it's very intimate and quiet. And then we're outside the room and they're inside the room and, you know, my DP's inside the room and then I'm outside and I'm looking at the, you know, monitor, you know, and, you know, we've talked through the scene lots, et cetera. And, and 
directed it and we know exactly what we're doing. And when I'm watching this scene happen, um, we're shooting one shot on Stuart and one shot on Mina. And I, 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 I'm starting to get a little teary eyed as I'm watching it because it feels true. Yeah. And then I, I look over and I see like someone in makeup and they're just like bald, <laughs> just watching it. And then I look over at one of my producing partners and this particular guy, he's the sweetest guy, but he never shows any emotion. And he's like this, he's watching like this. He's watching like this to cover the tears from his eyes. And I said, nah, man, this is beautiful. We got yeah. it. Like, we got it. Like, this is being, this truthfulness is being delivered on screen. And that's the job of an actor. And that's the job of a musician. And that's the job of a poet. And that's the job of a dancer. And that's the job of a filmmaker to deliver truth to the screen, ultimately. You yeah. know, whether it's a three-minute movie, a comedy, or, or a romance, or a drama, <clears throat> or a biopic to deliver truth, as much truth as we can put into the art, into the words. And uh, so it was such a pleasure and an honor to be able to, you know, to be able to write and produce and direct that, this movie and, and that scene. Well, yeah, I, uh, my head is off to you because I, I tried to think about myself in your role. You know, you're the director and having to keep it together. Like when I do workshops and, and facilitate and having to hold that space, like, there are times I will have to fight back tears because I'm trying to, you know, hold that space. And sometimes I'm just like, whatever, I, I need to, to let some tears out. And, and I think it's that raw vulnerability that really helps other people like lay aside their heart armor and connect at a deeper level. And with your film, uh, I think a part of why it resonated so deeply with me is I am attracted to all things raw, authentic, vulnerable, just real. And that transmission comes through in this film. It is a very real, piece of heart work and artwork but not to be corny but heart work is the word that's coming up um that's that's part of what i felt in it and um i cannot sing its praises highly enough this conversation doesn't even begin to you know scratch the surface of just the um magnitude of this film and and the mastery with which you 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 did adapt it uh to the screen from that book um kind of at a loss for words there's so much i was like oh i want to pick that apart a little more and that's again why i'm gonna to have to have you back on sebastian um the the film first of all it's available um i rented it through i believe amazon um but it's like on youtube amazon um pretty much most places you can rent the film correct most streamers yeah apple and it's everywhere in north america canada u.s and then international will probably be september i think it's being orchestrated now the end of awesome. september i think so awesome and anyone, so now, um, yeah, in North America, everywhere movie stream. Cool. So before we end, um, I wanted to ask two things. One, if um, I don't know as, as a direct, well, no, you're an author too. If there's a place people can go to find your work, whether it's social media or you have a website to not just learn more about Grace and Grit, but as you mentioned, you have that previous documentary and I know you have a bunch of things coming out. Um, so I wanted to ask, you know, if there's any of that you are at liberty to talk about or give us a little hint at, because personally, I'm very excited. Um, to see what's next after this and visiting your old documentary. So that, and also, is there anything we didn't cover about the movie that you want to leave um, listeners with? Because um, again, there's so much more to this film than we were able to discuss in this short time. So if there's anything we didn't cover that you wanted to share, please feel free to take this opportunity to do that as well. You know, we were, at, I was in Sedona a week ago or something, and Mary Williamson went out there with me and we screened it at the Sedona Performing Arts Center and, um, you know, big, you know, sold out audience and people loved the movie. And 
people cried and people laughed a lot throughout the film. And when I showed it to Ken, he laughed a lot. But there's a lot of comedic moments in there. So I don't want audience to feel like they're not supposed to laugh. They are. There's a lot of really, yes. a lot of really funny stuff in there. I don't play it for laughs, but it's, it's funny. Agreed. Yeah? And um, the number of people, though, that were in Sedona, the audience skews a little older, who stood up afterwards and said, that was my story. Mm. Yeah, that I lost my love and now I'm remarried, but that was my story. And that they said that they felt the film was so uplifting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that it was devastating and uplifting. Yes. Right? Like all the great love stories. And um, in a time when we are separated by so many things, rules and technology and insecurities and mm. concerns about appropriateness and, and, and illness and, you know, the artworks that penetrate our soul are the ones that allow us to, and even feeling that breath in a microcosm, making the next moment more rich. I think that this film is that, yeah, that the number of people who called me and say, hey, I can't, I really want to watch your film, but I lost someone. I can't watch it. You know, it's too close for me. And I said, no, 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 no. This film is for you. <laughs> like, yes. No, 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 no. You're supposed to watch it. Like, this is for you. This is not, oh, somebody dies. It's a bummer. This is for you. This is a real, this is a story about love beyond life. Right? So it, it's a deeply hopeful film. And I think that it was important to have that uh, electrical current that is in the book. And when, you know, you, when I went online after I read the book and I was seeing reviews in German and Latin and I mean, German and Latin American Spanish and Japanese and Russian, that people felt the same way. They were mm -hmm. like, this rocked me. And yet I was so full of hope that I'm not afraid of death. and I'm not afraid of love. I'm not afraid to believe in love again. That This was the reoccurring thing. And so I think that that is, and I think that that's hinted at in the trailer. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just, I want obviously, obviously audiences to know that. Also that now a film like this requires that audiences, you know, review it online if they, if, if they, you know, like it, if they watch it, leaving a review, wherever that is on Rotten Tomatoes, Amazon, that most people who will rent a movie now will read what do audiences say. Right. A lot of people are paid to, you know, critique stuff, you know, this way or that way. And, and, and that's a bit of a, you know, that's a bit of a charade, but audiences fortunately hold the power. You know, so that if people see this, if they like it, or if they just, even if they don't like it, if they feel that it's something important for someone else to see, this is the kind of artwork that, look, we're not trying to make tons of money here by making a movie like this, you know? We're trying to be in service to something. I've been in service yes. to something. And, and, uh, and so audiences who are awake and, and, and tender and sentient are responding very, you know, very promisingly. So if you're someone who is tender and awake, you'll love this film, I hope. No. Couldn't agree more. And, and if you want to message me also, I don't use a lot of social media, but I do use Instagram. It's an easy way to reach me. And, and there's a lot of stuff on my site that, I'm, that, I, that I update. So Cool. So just uh, by your name, Sebastian Siegel. Cool. Well, and uh, for those listening, if you scroll down here on the Be Here Now website, um, we'll have those links right there. So you just click on them. It'll take you to them. Or if you're on your phone, just click. And that way you could follow Sebastian and all of his journeys and exciting things that you will bringing into the world hopefully sooner than later um so yeah what a what a pleasure what an honor um thank you for 
um, bearing with me as I fumbled through a lot of my words, because this film really, when something really touches me and it has a deep impact, uh, I know it's a good thing when I'm having trouble um, uh, speaking some semblance of eloquence to it, which um, I feel like I did this conversation. So that's a good thing. And I'll own that. And I, uh, I appreciate it. I hope everyone that listens, please watch this film. And, and, and as Sebastian said, even if it maybe doesn't sound like it's for you, if someone else um, comes to mind that might benefit from it, uh, it's available pretty much everywhere streaming is. And we'll have a link to the film as well for at least a couple of streaming services. And if that's not linked on the Be Here Now page, just um, Google it. And, and I'm sure many options will come up to, uh, to stream it. So, Sebastian, thank you so much for your time, for the gift of this film, um, for the what I can't even begin to imagine, the labor, the joy heartbreak the the ups and downs that must have went into creating this i like i can only begin to imagine so thank you for enduring that for all of us the the people that get to witness that art and of course many thanks to ken and 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 treya uh and grace and grit um the book and that's what the film is purely it is equal parts grace and grit so yes it is not just a downer film at all it is very uplifting i definitely left uh, as well and and it felt appropriate so please watch this film. Uh, the links just scroll down there, there and um, check out Sebastian, follow his work. And yeah, Sebastian, thank you so much. Truly means everything to have you on the show. Chris, thanks so much for all you're doing. And thanks so much for having me on. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah. All right. Until next time, which will be sooner than later. Thank you very much. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.